Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our series about the idea of fun. Now, in previous parts of the series, which if you haven't listened to them yet, you should go check those out first, um, we talked about trying to define the, the somewhat elusive concept of fun and discover how exactly it is different in form from related ideas like uh, pleasure, entertainment, enjoyment, we talked about some research on the role of fun in uh, child development and how that might fit into a constructivist model of uh, how, how a child builds knowledge about cause and effect relationships in the world. We talked about fun and imagination play in children, and we're back to explore a few other avenues of fun today. That's right. The fun train continues. And I thought an interesting place to to start this episode off uh, might be to go back and uh, touch on something that we, we hadn't really discussed in detail. And that is that for the majority of human history, no one had any fun. And a very large percentage of the global population isn't having fun today because fun is just an English word and one that we've only been kicking around, according to Donald Hedrick, since the late 17th century. Oh, okay. So presumably people were having something uh, like fun before the word fun and uh, people in cultures without the English word fun are having equivalent experiences, but they might call it something different and maybe calling it something different causes different uh, sort of associative groupings with other words and other concepts. 
Right. This is one of the, this is the thing, right? This is when you have a, a word like fun, uh, what connotations does it have within a given language, within a given culture? And does that to what extent does that translate out into other cultures? So uh, and, and ultimately, that's going to be kind of an open question here. But to, to get down a little bit to um, to how we use fun and what fun means and where the word comes from. Um, I was reading an interesting paper from 1972 titled Degree Words. Uh, well, it's a book, actually, not, not an article, by American linguist Dwight to Bollinger, just who describes fun as a noun that had been fully uh, adjectivized by, quote, the younger set. Uh, again, he's writing, I think the book came out in 72, and these may have been writings that were uh, that were a little bit earlier. So you can roughly think, uh, uh, you know, middle 20th century on this. That's interesting. So he, he's saying definitely that fun as a noun goes back farther than fun as an adjective. Right. And so for some quick examples of this, um, the use of a noun, fun, you might say, if you were to use the the, the Simpsons quote, this is the largest car I could afford. Should I therefore be made the subject of fun? I guess. <laughs> or uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's a simpler use of, of the noun. Are we having fun yet? If you ask that question, the answer is no. <laughs> and then adjective use uh, could be an example. Here's another Simpsons quote. I don't remember this episode specifically, but can't you just bet that all the horses have a fun time? I don't recall what episode that's from. I don't know. I was just looking for I had to find another <laughs> Simpsons quote with the word fun in it. Okay, but the fun there is an adjective. It is describing the quality of the time they had. Right. Or uh, another example of adjective use would be something that we discussed in the first episode. The movie was fun. Okay, yeah. So you can imagine two slightly different sentences that mostly mean the same thing, but with subtle differences. Uh, you could say, I had fun at the movie. That's uh, that's a noun. You're saying mm -hmm. fun is some kind of substance, and you experience that substance, or you part partook of that substance while watching the movie. The movie was fun is an adjective describing something about the experience. Right. And so Bollinger points out that in this, fun becomes an enhancer, as well as, I guess, you know, we we're talking about what does it mean when you say a movie, when someone asks you if a movie was good and you say it was fun. In that mm -hmm. case, it, it's sort of like a limiter as well. Uh, you can say like it was, it was up to a certain point, up to a certain threshold. Interestingly, though, it's the oldest usages of fun seem to be the use of fun as a verb. Mm. Uh, so an example of this would be, and this, this is something one may encounter in certain books uh, and works. So I, I kind of associate this kind of phrase with like sort of hayseed fiction. Uh, mm. You might see someone say, well, we, we were just funning you. We was just funning you. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm just fooling. Yeah, and while and there's going to be a close connection there, uh, and and while this verb form isn't really used today for the most part, or it's certainly not the most popular use, the most widely used version of fun, we still see uh, examples of this preserved in phrases like "to make fun off." Right. So there, it's the noun, but I think that means the same thing as funning you or making fun of you. Yes. Well, actually, no, I wonder. I mean, funning you seems maybe broader. That could mean making fun of, but it could also mean sort of just playing with you. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess it's you know, context uh, dependent, right? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I was reading about all of this in a book titled The Painted Word, A Treasure Chest of Remarkable Words and Their Origins by Phil Cousineau. And it tracks the original verb fun back to the 1680s. And he writes that the exact origin of the word is uncertain. However, it might be a variant of the Middle European word funin, which means befool. He also points out that 18th century lexicographer Samuel Johnson considered fun a, quote, low cant word. And, mm. uh, and he also points out, the author here points out that um, funny money also retains uh, some of the original usage of the, of the verb. Funny, fooling, to befool. Oh, uh, okay. So maybe if you, you trace it back to its origins, it, it's possible that it doesn't just mean having a good time. It means something more uh, with the connotations of, of trickery or, or guile or something. Yeah, that's what that seems to be the case. Now, that's, this, this gets into a whole complicated area, though, right? Like, do, do the origins of words, you know, unknown origins especially, do they still resonate to any degree within a given uh, culture or linguistic system? But, but yeah, when you look at it, it does seem like the origins of fun may indeed lie in foolishness and, uh, and in, this, in this kind of um, mischief that is at the expense of something else. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one can't help but but wonder, you know, we were just we we're talking you know, for instance about movies. If a movie is fun, that means it can't be great. And is that I wonder if that has any connection with this idea that fun itself is something that is done uh that, that is enjoyed that, or or encountered at the expense of something more important. Hmm. Well, it makes me think about uh how a lot of movies that you would say well it wasn't good but it was fun means something about how I don't know if the movie was successful in the way that it meant to be, but I was able to make fun out of the experience uh-huh. of it, which kind of like the way that maybe even if your king isn't doesn't have such a good humor himself, you know, the court jester can can make a good time for everybody and the king can't really do anything about it without really looking bad. Yeah, this is another great um great point. Something we should have talked about, I guess, when we were talking about about uh, the, the movie connotation earlier because yeah, when you say that a movie wasn't great but it was fun, you could mean that in a very heartfelt way. Like like yeah, it, this wasn't a great movie, but it was enjoyable. I had a great time watching it. I was able I I enjoyed the you know, some of the imaginative ideas in it. Or you could mean it like no, that movie it, it wasn't it wasn't good. In fact, it was horrible. But I enjoyed watching it because I I I, I feel great pleasure uh, looking upon uh, works of ruin. Uh, it it entertains me to watch others fail, and I am deeply down a horrible person. <laughs> so anyway, most of that's just more food for thought, I think. Now, as far as I can tell, and I was looking around for this, I, I, no one seems to have done an exhaustive look at fun or fun-like words in other languages, but I thought my, it might be telling to at least look at one related word in a not-too-distant tongue. So I thought we might look at the German word Spaß. All right. I was uh, reading about this on yourdailygerman.com by a, um, a writer, and uh, he also does, uh, I've seen him on some YouTube videos, uh, by the name of Emmanuel, and it's quite fascinating. So, Spash essentially means fun or sport, but as the author points out, you can't just throw the word in via rough translation. Uh, and this, of course, is going to be an obvious reality for anyone out there who's 
recently taken any kind of foreign language or you remember any foreign language classes you took in the past, you can't just swap out words and expect a translation to still work most of the time. And maybe it's possible with more closely related uh, languages. Uh, But for instance, German to English, you're going to mess things up if you try and translate things like that. So, for instance, with Spaß here, you can't say that was fun and then translate that roughly to das war Spaß. Like, it just wouldn't work. And we'll get back to why in a second. So, Spaß is apparently the Germanized version of the Italian spasso, which means fun or entertainment, and comes from the Latin verb uh, expassare, which is a version of the word expandere. Uh, So, uh, according to the the author here, quote, so that means spash is related to expand. And the author here explains that the connection here would seem to, to indicate there's an idea of letting go, perhaps. Like to have fun is to let go. To have fun is to expand. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if that connection is purely lost within the confines of the German language or not, but it's kind of interesting. You know, it comes back to that question, like if, if you're like two or three uh, changes away, uh, removed from the origin of a word, do, does the origin still resonate in the current usage? Oh, I, I feel like I see plenty of parallel to that kind of expression, even in English. Uh, when you have fun, are you cutting loose? When you have fun, mm. are you uh, letting your hair down? How about that? Yeah. Now, to come back to just how the word is used, um, uh, the author here, uh, Emmanuel, he, he points out that spash and fun are both used differently. So in English, we say something is fun, or we can say something is fun. But in German, something makes fun, or it makes one fun. And the example they point to is uh, the, the sentence, uh, Deutsch lernen macht mir spash. So clunkily, you could, you could translate, if you were bad at translating, you could clunkily translate that to German learning makes me fun. But of course, a much better and truer translation would be, I enjoy learning German or to me, learning German is fun. Interesting. So there would be a trait ascribed to the speaker. It would be kind of like saying learning German makes me happy, except it's not exactly the same thing as happiness. Right, right. So... Uh, there's a whole article on this at yourdailygerman.com. Che- definitely check that out if you're interested in uh, in the German language or this particular example. Uh, likewise, uh, I know we have a bunch of multilingual folks out there, and I would love to hear some other examples of like how what is a word that is like fun in another tongue, but also distinct from fun. I, I'm I'm interested also in words that that fun can be translated as, but that also encompass things that we don't associate with fun uh, so much. Uh, So uh, yeah, any great examples of that out there, feel free to write in about them. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite kinds of listener mail, actually, is when we hear from somebody who speaks a different language telling us about the idea we talked about in their language. Yeah. I remember we got a lot of those uh, with our episodes about days of the week. Uh, And that was really interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, there are a couple of papers I wanted to uh, look at uh, examining a couple of other aspects of fun. Uh, One began as a tangent off of the other, but eventually became so interesting that I wanted to devote uh, its own section to it. So the first one I wanted to look at, the original one, is a paper published in 2017 in the Journal of Positive Psychology by Harry T. Rice, Stephanie D. O'Keefe, and Richard D. Lane called Fun is More Fun When Others Are Involved. Uh, This is about the social aspects of fun. Uh, Now, uh, I wanted to mention a few things from their background section. One, first of all, is that they 
they cite and echo the sentiments of the the 2010 paper we looked at in part one, the fun, fun, fun paper by uh, by McManus and Furnham. And they're citing the idea that fun is really of central importance to our lives. And yet, given this importance, it has been uh, given remarkably little formal study in psychology, though related concepts like play and intrinsic motivation and happiness have received more attention. They point out that, quote, the word fun does not appear as an index term in any emotion or social psychology textbook or handbook of which we are aware, which is kind of hard to believe, but Hmm. uh, so they say. Then they actually, they cite McManus and Furnham's paper, mainly for the idea that uh, fun is, as uh, the previous authors concluded, a, quote, complex phenomenon that has different meanings for different types of people. And so this is the idea, the conclusion we talked about in, in part one, that there is actually, that is, there, there's actually very little that is, quote, fun for the whole family. And when an activity is fun for everyone, it's often because it is a multifaceted activity and different people can appreciate different aspects of it. So imagine a family board game. Some family members might find this fun because they like games. They inherently enjoy well, what McManus and Furnham called like the achievement factor of fun. These are like focused activities where you are maybe getting into a flow state or you are trying to, to focus all your attention on doing them correctly and that sort of thing. Where others in the family might still enjoy the activity, but for totally different reasons. Maybe because they enjoy relaxing in the company of family, and the game doesn't really matter to them. Or others might enjoy the game because they like talking and joking while the game's going on. That's what they call the socializing factor of fun. Mm. Now, for more background, the authors here also look at... uh, some studies that exist not so much about the nature of fun itself, but about the consequences of having uh, of having fun in various environments. So, for example, there are a lot of studies that seem focused on the idea of having fun at work. And they cite a, a big list of papers showing that, quote, experiencing fun at work, either in job-related activities or socializing with coworkers, positively predicts higher job satisfaction and lower employee burnout and turnover. However, I think many of us know the flip side of that, about how in some cases it can be rather excruciating when the boss or a coworker wants to insist that you have fun. And there are actually studies on that too. They cite a couple of them. I picked one to highlight and read in full, and I got to say I found it really interesting. So I actually want to make that whole paper a side quest that I'll come back to after I'm (laughs) done uh, talking about this one. So Rice and co-authors in 2017 were focused on the social aspects of fun. Uh, They were trying to see if there are major differences between the experience of solitary fun, you know, when you're having fun because of the activity you're doing, versus social fun, in which fun is potentially because of the activity, but also because of the social context. And so to highlight some of their main uh, findings, remember, again, these are going to be averages because uh, many people do have very different ideas about what fun is, even though there are trends. On average, people have more fun doing things with others than they do doing things alone. But there are important exceptions to this trend. People tend to have more fun sharing an experience with a friend. In some of these experiments, they literally ask people to bring a friend as opposed to sharing the same experience with a stranger. 
And I thought this was an interesting contrast with the study about childhood development that we talked about in the last episode, where children on average seem to have more fun with a novel toy as opposed to a familiar toy, or seem to have more fun with a toy about which some functional mystery remains. Like if you still haven't figured out how it works or all the things you can do with it, some amount of, of novelty or uh, still uh, ambiguity about the, the mechanics of a toy makes it more fun. So when it comes to inanimate objects for play, familiarity more often leads to reduced fun. And yet in this case, the, the authors here find that the opposite is true with people. You tend to have more fun with a friend than a stranger. Though I guess an important consideration for that is the difference between uh, a friend and a stranger is more than just the, the difference in familiarity versus novelty, because usually a friend is somebody you have chosen on purpose to spend time with. Uh, I wonder if you tested this with other familiar versus novel relationships apart from friendship, like bring a coworker or bring a relative. The results might not be the same. That's interesting, too, to think about in terms of children, because when you when you start looking at like the world of, of play dates um you know in some cases that's a a, a child that uh, a friend that has been chosen by the uh, by one by one of the children in question other times it's just uh hey these two adults know each other they both have a child of the same age so guess what play date is happening the whole world of like of childhood development and play is, is so rich with different possibilities like cuz you also get into the the world of like okay now we have two children hanging out together they may squabble over a toy but if you have two of the same toy then they may engage in something called parallel play where mm -hmm. they're both they're not really playing with each other it's not really a social interaction but they're both kind of doing the same thing at the same time Mm -hmm. uh, which I guess is kind of a necessary developmental step to get to that point to where you're actively playing together. But I would bet even in a lot of parallel play, if they're not constantly playing together, say in a cooperative or competitive way, they still at various points kind of check in with one another and see what mm -hmm. the other is doing. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, it's kind of like imagine two kingdoms that have uh, warred in the past, and now they're they're working towards interaction. And for now, we're just we're just happy that they're both doing our own thing. But we do have to check in and, with each other every now and then and make sure that uh, you know everything's still cool. And you are also interested, like, how are they playing with that toy? Can I do that mm -hmm. with mine as well? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, this study also related fun to the so-called core affect model which is a two-variable description of the consciously accessible features of a person's basic neurophysiological state. And the two values are hedonic valence and arousal. So hedonic valence is pleasure versus displeasure, and arousal is activated versus deactivated. And you can imagine uh, these two variables forming a graph with four corners. So in the unpleasant deactivated corner, you could be depressed, lethargic, bored to tears. I don't know, think, you know, waiting on hold on a call with your insurance company for hours. Mm -hmm. In the pleasant deactivated corner, you could be peaceful, relaxed and content, maybe lying in a hammock in the shade. In the unpleasant activated corner, you could be extremely frightened or distressed and anxious. And in the pleasant activated corner, you could be excited, happy, or ecstatic. Uh, so think, you know, the middle of a concert, seeing your favorite band or, or playing a really fun game. Hmm. 
And uh, the authors here found on average that experiences that people describe as fun actually increase both low activation and high activation pleasant states. So people describe things as fun and it seems to push them both in the hammock direction and in the concert direction. But social fun specifically, fun with other people, increases high activation pleasure. However, there was a there there was an interesting exception to all this, and it was the variable of the the trait loneliness. They found quote uh, that loneliness moderated the latter effects, such that lonely individuals received a weaker boost from shared compared to solitary fun. So, in general, people have more fun if they're having fun with other people, but specifically the trait of being lonely makes people less likely to get that additional boost from having other people around when they're having fun. And I thought that point was really interesting. The authors write, quote, previous research has suggested that loneliness is less a matter of spending time alone and more a matter of not experiencing a gain in positive emotions from social activity. And uh, I, I don't know if I'd ever heard it put exactly this way before, but that absolutely rings true to me. Like in my experience, loneliness is not simply not being around other people, people often describe feelings of loneliness most acutely, like in really close temporal proximity to social events. Like a feeling of loneliness might come on when you are leaving a party and reflecting on the party or the social event that you just attended, sort of thinking about the idea that you were surrounded by people, but there was like a problem. It felt like something wasn't right. Maybe some kind of depth or richness of social interaction that other people appear to be experiencing from talking to friends at a party doesn't really seem to work for you. Like you don't get that same benefit. And they cite several studies such as uh, Hawkley et al. in 2003 and uh, Sai and Rice from 2009 pointing toward the conclusion that the core trait of people who experience loneliness is, quote, a relative lack of intimacy and enjoyment in interactions with friends. Now, I think uh, trait loneliness can can fluctuate. So like, you know, I I think uh, some people can probably say from experience that like you can go through more kind of lonely periods in your life where that uh, that is an experience for you and then fortunately come out of it and uh, find situations where you get more enjoyment from social interaction. But that does appear to be a, a very important uh, limiting or mitigating factor in the idea that at bringing people along for your fun activity makes it more fun. That is true for no for most people, but not for everyone. Right, right, and again, I guess it also depends on on the activity. Yeah, the activity, the people that might come along. Uh, yeah, there there are other factors to uh, to tease apart there. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. 
Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, I'm ready to jump into this, uh, this side quest paper about 
the idea of having fun at work. Remember, I, this was originally in the context of uh, being a counterpoint to a whole bunch of studies that found essentially there are positive, there are benefits to employees having fun at work and saying, you know, your employee, it would be really great if you can make work a fun environment. That's good even for objective measures for the bottom line of a business. And so the paper I read here was by a, an author named Peter Fleming, who was associated with the University of Cambridge at the time he wrote this. I think he's at an Australian university now. Um, but the title is Workers' Playtime, Boundaries and Cynicism in a Culture of Fun Program, published in the Journal of Applied Behavioral Science in 2005. And I will try to summarize this as breezily as I can, but it had so many interesting little tangents in it. So Fleming starts by talking about how beginning roughly in the 1980s and continuing through to the time this paper was written, there was kind of a fad complex among business academics and management consultants and company culture gurus that was all centered around the idea that the workplace had to be fun. And this was based on some actual uh, research, like uh, there were studies and also just popular workplace anecdotes that seemed to show tangible gains for businesses when their employees had fun at work with claims that work, you know, when your workers are having more fun, they're more motivated, more productive, more committed to their jobs, more innovative or creative. They provide better customer service and so forth, all of which might be true. In fact, I think it probably is true. And even on top of that, uh, more recent studies show that when employees have fun at work or have fun socializing with coworkers, they tend to report higher job satisfaction, less burnout, and the rate of uh, employee turnover is lower. But okay, so you imagine you have these facts in hand and you want to implement that knowledge. So you're a manager or a business owner. How do you make sure your employees are having fun? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Fleming writes, quote, through informal dress codes, office parties, games, humor, zany training camps, joking, and so on, organizational members are encouraged to loosen up and find more pleasure in their roles. So this concept, of, of course, has been explored uh, in satire many times over the years. I mean, obviously, The Office uh, explores this a lot, the awkwardness of workplace fun, but also the release of workplace fun. I mean, those are two common themes on that show. Mm -hmm. um, also, the, the excellent recent series, Severance. Uh, this is uh, this doesn't spoil anything, but the basic the basic concept for anyone unfamiliar with it is that you have a um, a neural implant that separates your uh, your your home life from your work life, your mm. Audi from your Innie, and your Innie <laughs> has no memory or knowledge of your Audi, and vice versa. And so uh, there there are a lot of themes in this show regarding uh, fun in the workplace. Uh, there's, uh, for instance, uh, in, in the show, the, the employees try to win such privileges as the pre-waffle party egg bar social. Uh, where they win it. There's like this little cart that's brought out and it has like fancy deviled eggs on it and some punch. And you know, everybody wants this. And it, it does, even in the show, and it's kind of quirkiness, it seems kind of delightful. And it made me it, almost nostalgic for enforced fun in the workplace. Well, of course, yeah, and that, that highlights it. it can be a mix, right? Like zany training camps might sound kind of dreadful, but 
office parties can be fun or not. Sometimes they are. Humor and joking are certainly good, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Well, sometimes they are. But I wanted to read a section directly from Fleming here to give you a little more flavor of what, you know, some of this, uh, uh, you know, company culture guru inspired uh, uh, joking might be like. So um, Fleming writes, quote, Perhaps the best-known proponent of staged corporate humor is Barsu. He maintained that management can use joking, laughter, and smiling to develop vibrant and creative organizations. In fact, its applicability is apparently universal. And then uh, Fleming begins a quote from this source. Humor plays a vital role in helping to close the communication gap between leader and followers, helping to extract information which might not otherwise be volunteered. It also enhances trust, facilitates change, and encourages plurality of vision. Humor breaks down barriers between people and makes an organization more participative and responsive. It follows that an environment that is amenable to humor will also facilitate organizational learning and renewal. And then uh, Fleming uh, himself goes on, The underlying paradox here, as in much of the prescriptive literature, is that humor is ultimately a serious business. It is unsurprisingly driven by very sober corporate motives. The obvious difficulty of institutionalizing an experience that is usually considered spontaneous was intimated by Hudson in 2001, an executive for Brady Corporation. She observed that humor and fun can be developed through exercises that may feel spontaneous, but are in fact well orchestrated through party events such as Brady Fest or the <laughs> Lego program in which employees play with Lego blocks like children. That, uh, so. now that's a that's a loaded statement. I mean, there are plenty of adults out there who who uh, who have fun with Lego blocks, and there's nothing wrong with that. I love Lego. I I I am I'm so excited about the idea of playing with Lego blocks on my <laughs> own terms. If my boss told me to play with Lego blocks, I don't know. That might be a little different. Well, I guess my approach would be, well, it could be worse. At least you yeah. know, we're not doing trust falls or anything like that or having to pretend to attack each other, that sort of thing. Yeah. To- uh, so, uh, so, so what was the actual observational component of uh, this paper? Well, Fleming here took part in a field study where he observed the workings of a customer service call center in Australia, pseudonymously called Sunray. That's not the real name, but that's what he's calling it for the purpose of this report. Uh, so this is a qualitative report. And this company was selected because it was known for trying to create a fun atmosphere at work. And Fleming performed a bunch of in-depth confidential interviews to understand how the culture of managed fun worked. And uh, this culture of fun has too many facets to get into all of them here, but it's everything from you got planned activities, like there was one described as sort of like a, a high school musical theater where employees would be like bust off somewhere to learn and then perform a song and dance routine. Uh, to dress up days where you would dress up like a superhero or you'd wear pajamas to work to a handbook of company philosophy uh, that includes a bunch of stuff about the three F's, which are focus, fun, and fulfillment. And uh, to read from Fleming here, quote, when an employee embodies the three F's, they are said to have the right attitude. This involves a set of performances that communicate a positive personality, a childish playfulness, and a bubbly frame of mind. Importantly, however, a genuine expression of these demeanors, rather than mere surface acting, is mandatory at Sunray. The fun's got to be real, okay? So, um... Fleming found through his observations and interviews that, in fact, though there were some people who did appreciate this culture of managed fun, 
One of the core results of these top-down attempts to make work fun was a mounting sense of cynicism in a subset of employees, which he traces to a, to a blurring of the boundary between work life and non-work life. The dissolution of this boundary was not necessarily, in fact, probably not in most cases, a good thing. Yeah, the, the blurring of that boundary always seems to be rife for contention. Uh, no matter which which direction things are getting blurred in, because it can certainly feel weird when and when employees are encouraged to bring more of their outside self into work, but it also feels weird if they're encouraged to leave it at home. Like there's there's mm. there's not really you know it, it, it's it's a very I imagine from the employer's side of things it's a very tricky area to navigate because it seems like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah, and there's another kind of paradox or double bind like that uh, that we'll get to after the conclusion here. So uh, deep interviews revealed to Fleming that several of the major problems with the culture at this company of man, uh, the culture of managed fun here uh, came from the dissolution of, of boundaries. And uh, this dissolution of boundaries represented a couple of things. One of them was condescension. Some employees felt that the regime of fun was actually infantilizing, treating them like kindergartners rather than as adults with dignity and self-respect. And like two of the main work non-work boundaries blurred in this arena were the boundaries between work and school and the boundaries between work and family. So, you know, if you are made to feel like you are a student and your boss is the teacher or made to feel like maybe you are a kid and your boss is the parent, that that's a kind of like unpleasant and condescending boundary to blur. Uh, and as a compliment to this, I didn't mention it earlier, but there's a whole section uh, about how at Sunray, this workplace, they used a lot of messaging about how they are a family, and much has been written uh, about that concept lately. Oh, yes. Uh, but uh, to read from Fleming, quote, In its most patronizing form, paternalism erodes this rational sense of self and endeavors to instigate a childlike membership role that simultaneously positions management as benevolent caregivers. You can see why this might be unpleasant for some people. Okay, so first is condescension. The second uh, boundary-blurring problem is inauthenticity. Basically, by constantly insisting that work is something else, work is something fun, that work is like a party, or work is like family, or work is like a game, many employees were driven to reflect on exactly the ways that work is not like any of these things. Mm -hmm. So to use the example of Family, if a family is in, you know, families can be a lot of different things, but in the best sense, maybe a family is supposed to be about unconditional love. Is that really what a workplace is like? No, no, generally not. Unless your workplace is your family, in which case that's, well, there, um, there's even more word, more room for, for a complex uh, uh, understanding there. But, uh, but yeah, for the most part, it is, uh, it, is, it is far from unconditional. It is very conditional. Oftentimes you will sign a document that, that <laughs> spells out what those conditions are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's that, but in the case of, so that's like the family comparison, but imagine the, the boundary blurring with other types of more fun oriented stuff. So suggesting that work is like a party or work is like a game. A key difference is that fun non-work activities are generally things you do freely. You, you know, at least uh, under the right conditions, you are doing them of your own volition. And they are also generally things that you are free to stop doing as soon as you decide that they're not actually fun. Workplace events are not like this. You know, 
the boss says it's time to have fun now actually borders on an oxymoron, which I, I think sort of reveals an interesting fact about fun itself that we haven't really gotten into much yet. Fun, for some reason, uh, at least to my mind, entails some assumption of freedom. The exact same activity could be fun if you choose to do it freely, and it can quite easily stop being fun if you were forced to do it. The exact same activity. If somebody is saying you must do it, well, that's not so much fun anymore. So try to make somebody play a game, even if it's a game they would enjoy in other contexts, and you are almost certainly leaving the kingdom of fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, plenty of people have explored this, uh, even if, if they themselves are the boss in question. Turn the thing, turn your passion, turn your hobby into even a side business. And sometimes you're, you're hit with the reality of this. Well, it's not quite fun anymore because I'm not entirely doing it completely on my own terms anymore. Exactly. And this also sort of reminds me of the study we talked about in part two about the relationship between fun learning and free exploratory play in young children. So if long, young children learn by playing and the, the wages of play is fun, the internal reward for experimental play behavior is the sense of fun. Uh, you, you got to think about how these behaviors are usually noted to be self-directed. It is free exploratory play. As soon as an adult comes in and tells the child what they have to do, is that free exploratory play anymore? And does it come with the same sense of fun? I don't know. But anyway, this all leads up to uh, an answer to a paradox that is emerging from earlier. You know, what didn't this all start with the idea that there are a bunch of studies or at least observations about how fun workplaces are better in, in many objective measures, like their the employees are more committed, more motivated and so forth? Well, yes, but there may be a very important taxonomic difference. The most authentically fun workplaces are the ones where the workers create organic fun for themselves rather than the cultures of fun that are deliberately constructed by management. But there's a twist to even this. Uh, so I'm going to quote from Fleming here. Fleming cites a number of, uh, of studies in this sentence, but I'm going to skip over those. Uh, he, he just writes, quote, When playful schmoozing is self-initiated in this way, however, members of management often find it an affront to their authority and are quietly distrustful, even though it may actually lead to higher productivity, as Gouldner discovered in relation to, quote, indulgency patterns. Indeed, as Aykroyd and Thompson in 99 and Fleming and Sewell in 2002 intimated, self-authored fun may even be interpreted as seditiousness simply because it has not been officially sanctioned. Mm. So we're left in this conundrum where it's like, I would say fun actually is good, both in itself, because it's it makes people happy, it's a good thing, and it's usually good in its indirect effects on business. Bosses know that fun workplaces are are objectively better for the bottom line in a lot of different ways. Yet, when employees create an authentic culture of fun for themselves, bosses are often suspicious of it or hostile to it. And when bosses try to inject fun into the workplace from the top down, it can backfire and lead to unhappiness and cynicism. You could say like, well, if you've got cynicism about attempts to have fun at work, then you've just got a bad attitude. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> Uh, but I think Fleming takes, I would say, an appropriately sympathetic 
reaction to to this idea. He he describes cynicism as a kind of defense mechanism or a, a psychological self vaccination against the loss of dignity implied by the, the condescension of managed fun, and against the loss of integrity implied by the inauthenticity of managed fun. And so, in the end, in the conclusion section, he he offers a few final thoughts. Um, one is that basically, if you're trying to intentionally create an environment of fun, you really need to consider how these attempts will land with respect to people's sense of adult dignity and uh, and integrity. You know, you want to make sure that whatever you're doing does not feel uh, does not feel condescending, infantilizing, or does not feel kind of fake and forced. Yeah. And the next point uh, that he makes, this really makes me think, Rob, about your comments earlier about the relationships between fun and the tradition of fooling. Mm. Uh, Fleming writes, quote, it has been suggested that authentic fun may not only be incongruous with managerial control, but gain its very inspiration from being against authority. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's got to go right to the heart of it, right? Like it may be kind of painful to the boss's ego, but in some cases it might actually be the best thing for a business to let the employees make their own fun. Even if some component of that fun is a kind of uh, rebellious or satirical attitude to company authorities. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, and yeah, this goes straight into the tradition of the fool. You know, the 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 fool is the one who can who can joke with the king without uh, being sent to the gallows, that sort of thing. You know, and you get into traditions of of carnival and stuff where the uh, you know where 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 the fool becomes king for a day and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So if this is true in business, and I, I find myself pretty well convinced by this, I think this makes a really strong case. It makes me wonder how the same thing might be true not only in business, but in other goal-oriented team activities. Like, I wonder if, for example, sports teams or military squads or things like that also have objectively better performance by some measures when there is a sense of fun, but that fun cannot really be installed from above and to some extent necessarily involves a spirit of camaraderie against the coach or against the sergeant and so forth. Yeah, and I, this, this definitely helps contribute to the picture that a, a, a good boss has to be the right combination of things. Um, and it's easy to think, again, of the office in this comparison in which we have in the character of Michael Scott, we have this, uh, this, this ineffective boss, a boss that... Um, is too eager to want to be part of the fun, mm-hmm. um, but also uh, I seem to recall also at times like he's he, that also makes him more uh, subject to being hurt by not being part of the fun. Though I guess a lot of times he's he's oblivious to that as well. Yeah, but um, uh, there's probably a, I guess there are probably some great examples in fiction of of the the thin skinned boss as well, the one that that really wants to to stamp out any kind of uh, uh, workplace fun, a pure villain. Well, I mean, I think about how many scenes in the office involve workers genuinely making their own authentic fun and they mm-hmm. are having fun. And then Michael detects this and tries to yes. insert himself into it. It's like, I want to be a part. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's the end of my thoughts about that. But I, I found uh, that paper unusually fascinating for a business psychology uh, uh, paper. Yeah, fascinating. And yeah, certainly one that resonates uh, in, you know, still today. Obviously, the workplace is has uh, changed a lot uh, in the past couple of years, but uh, a lot of the, these realities still uh, still hold true. 
But I would say regarding the broader concept of fun, just one of the main things, again, I want to emphasize extracting from that is the relationship between um, between fun and authenticity, the relationship between fun and freedom and between mm. fun and self-volition. Yeah. Fun is the thing I choose to do. Uh, I'm, I'm making a choice in the fun. If, if fun is demanded of me, well, then... It's, it's probably not fun anymore. Though, again, fun is so subjective, you can easily imagine a situation where, uh, or perhaps reflect on a situation where there was some sort of a workplace-induced fun that surprise actually ended up being fun. Things mm-hmm. like that do happen. Sure. And to, I mentioned this, but just to say it again, in, the, in this study, Fleming did find some, you know, some employees liked the culture of managed fun, just not everybody. There was just a large subset that, that found it insulting or made, making them cynical and so forth. But again, I, I would be interested to hear from, from uh, people who've served as, as bosses uh, and employers out there. Like, it has to be frustrating because it's like, okay, we, we're going to do, um, I don't know, uh, what's an example? Uh, I guess we'll, the egg bar. You know, let's say you're rolling out the deviled egg bar for your employees. Yeah, some people are insulted uh, by this and they think it's infantile. And so then you take it away and then other people are hurt that they're no longer getting an egg bar. Like there's, yeah, seems like it's, there's, there's no way to please everybody. Uh, let's see. Uh, giving people paid time off. I'd say that pleases just about everybody. Well, yes, yes. I think, I think, I think everyone's in favor of that. Because then it's up to you to have fun. If you want fun or if you yeah. can have fun. Of course, some people are, yeah. uh, are going to have to use that time to, to, do freelance work or work another job or take care of other responsibilities. Of course. But then again, that's sometimes the case with, with work. We didn't really get into this, but, but sometimes if you have workplace induced fun, well, that's coming at the expense of work that you're supposed yep. to do and expected to have completed. And exactly. so that becomes a complicating fact. I didn't mention this, but in fact, this is something that is talked about. Like there's another problem with workplace fun. This was not so much the subject of Fleming's paper, but it was highlighted in in the Rice paper in the summary section. It said another major problem with workplace fun is when people are, say, uh, feeling like they don't have enough time to do all the work they need to do. If they're in a rush, if they've got a big workload, uh, people often perceive managerial attempts to inject fun as real infuriating distractions from you know <laughs> what the, what they're supposed to be focusing on. Yeah. But then again, I mean, um, employees are, are were impossible to please because I distinctly remember examples of where work would say like, hey, we're going to have drinks uh, on the house for everybody after work today. And I would be like, oh, I'm going home after work. Why don't you do this during the day? Do it during the work day. That's the day that I've carved out for you. So if you're going to give me a free drink, give it to me during that time period. So again, impossible. Uh, I don't have time during the work day to do that. <laughs> I'm going to do my work. <laughs> yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, I thought we might come back to a topic we touched on previously. Uh, I, I mentioned how, personally, when it comes to exercise, that I, I would not describe some of the experiences as fun. For example, I believe the example I used was, if I'm swimming laps by myself, I would not say that's fun. I would say it's fulfilling, it's satisfying, it's good for even a flow state and a, you know, a sort of uh, headspace of creative thinking. But 
I would not say, this is fun, I am having fun now, or I had fun doing that. But it's not just, you know, it's, it's dependent on other things. If I'm swimming with my son in a cool pool, like it has a waterfall or something, and, uh, you know, we're having a good time, that's fun. That's obviously fun. So this is all, of course, very subjective, and as is fun itself. Uh, we had a listener write in and mention that they personally would only find swimming not fun if they didn't reach their goal or uh, they weren't able to perform to meet their own expectations. And I agree that, that not meeting expectations for performance is less satisfying and even disappointing, but I would not personally state that the opposite of all of this is fun, but again, all of this is highly subjective. But I did find some research, uh, some writings on this topic. So I thought I'd share some of this here. So uh, some of this was uh, related to some work by uh, Worrell et al. Uh, the first thing I ran across by these uh, authors was a 2014 article in Marketing Letters. Uh, and it was titled, Is It Fun or Exercise? And uh, when the subtitle, the subtitle uh, for the paper was "The Framing of Physical Activity Biases Subsequent Snacking." So the mm. authors here looked at research to determine how the perception of fun in exercise impacted one's likelihood of later indulging in uh, hedonistic snacks. Um, you know, basically rewarding yourself with some sort of a perhaps unhealthy treat later in the day. And their findings indicated that the more fun an activity was uh, in, in the individual's mind, uh, the less likely they were to later seek that reward of a hedonistic snack. Hmm. Quote, engaging in a physical activity seems to trigger the search for reward when individuals perceive it as exercise, but not when they perceive it as fun. Hmm. So the idea here, which the, the authors elaborate on more in a paper from 2015 titled, Is It Fun or Exercise?, uh, is that the more fun an exercise is, the less we're likely to focus on the work involved, which you know, may seem like an overstatement of the obvious, but uh, you know, we often have to have these things spelled out uh, in, in uh, research and in uh, these this sort of findings. But, and as we point out pretty frequently, what seems obvious is often untrue. That's right, right. So these, these statements and ideas have to be examined. Yeah. And yeah, so the idea here is if you're, if you're having fun and you, f- you feel like you're having fun, even while you're exercising, then later you're less likely to feel like you're entitled to that reward. And the reverse, if you feel like that exercise was a lot of work, like, well, that wasn't fun, but I, I, you know, I sure did really pump the iron today. I, I deserve that, that donut. I'm entitled to that donut. And so the authors say, quote, focusing attention on something else may change the perceptions of the effort ex- uh, expended during the activity, reducing feelings of entitlement due to exercising. So this would seem an indicator that there's certainly a benefit beyond motivation to exercise itself in finding a form of exercise that produces a feeling of fun. Yeah, so that maybe if your exercise is fun, it's not just that you're more likely to do it, but also that you're less likely to try to compensate with other rewards later. Uh, so maybe if you're you're playing a sport you like versus, I don't know, just running on a treadmill. Exactly, right. Or um, uh, this is an example that comes to, to my mind anyway. Uh, I'm not a runner, so I can't speak to this, but I know we have runners out there. And if I know one thing about runners... They love to talk about running. Uh, write in and let us know. Uh, but it seems that like running around on a, on a, on a track, you're going to have limited stimuli. But if you're out running in the world, like, like most runners I know like to do, like you're 
you're you're subject to uh, you know a different environment uh, to uh, different novel details of that environment, and I could imagine where that would be more likely to produce an experience of fun whilst running. I remember I formed a very strange association with exercise years ago where I, uh, for some reason, the pattern I put together is that every time I went to the YMCA to, uh, and spent time running on a treadmill, I would watch televangelists on TV. <laughs> and that, that was, uh, it formed some kind of uh, unbreakable link in my mind. So I still sometimes associate exercise with the prosperity gospel. Weird. Okay. The, the authors of this paper, they do suggest uh, uh, towards the end of the paper, they say, quote, listening to music during a run, making phone calls during a walk, or watching a video during a treadmill routine may be more related to weight loss success and to perseverance than previously thought. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. I would, it, swimming, uh, there are a lot of those things I can't do while swimming, but yeah. I will say <laughs> that at the, the YMCA where I swim, uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, there's a, an aerobics class in the pool, and uh, the, uh, the, the person who runs that class always has a boom box out, and they're always just really pumping out the jams. I'm talking stuff like there's Orbital playing, it's mm. <laughs> you know, Mortal Kombat soundtrack, uh, oh. other stuff. I mean, it, it, <laughs> the so original, it, the, the Paul Anderson original yeah, yeah. Mortal Kombat soundtrack with like yeah. KMFDM and all that? Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I've heard KMFDM on there, but you know, a lot of uh, a lot of pumping beats. And I will say, it makes those days more pleasant than the other days, where it's just empty pool ambience. So I will say, yeah, I, I can see the difference uh, just you know in my own experience there. And so obviously, that's going to be even more enhanced if you have some uh, degree of control over the music or what you're watching while you uh, are on the treadmill. Uh, did you have a say so in what you watched at the YMCA, or is this what was on? Uh, yeah, the the treadmills that each had little individual TVs, and uh, so you you could pick what was on them. I mean, if the TV worked, sometimes it didn't, but uh, yeah, you, you had a choice. And I don't know, I I often don't love a lot of what's on basic cable, so it seemed for some reason like the <laughs> the health and wealth gospel was a was a good choice. Uh, at, at least it was kind of interesting in some way. Okay, I could see that. Now, this also makes me think that um, I know in a lot of these exercise machines, you also have other forms of visualization. And especially mm -hmm. in light of these, uh, this paper that I just referenced, it's also interesting. Uh, I was looking at some other studies that were considering the use of imagery to enhance the perception of fun in exercise. Mm -hmm. So I think the specific categories they were looking at were enjoyment imagery, energy imagery, technique imagery, or just straight up exercise alone without any imagery. And um, I, I believe they were finding that, yes, all three of these actual categories of imagery seem to have an effect on, on, on the, uh, the perception of fun in exercise. And I think it's, it's ultimately beyond the scope of that research, but I wonder if the imagery was perceived, was perceived more as a reward or an enhancement, you know, like how do you, how does the, how does that work on us? If is mm. the, is the imagery on the screen in front of you that is, you know, is connected to your performance on the treadmill, do we end up seeing that as reward or is mm. that just an enhancement of fun? I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know either. It kind of comes back to what we said earlier, like fun, despite being this, thing that drives so much uh, in our lives and in our culture, uh, there's not as much written about as, as you might expect. Also, the word fun is just used so often. It can make searching for these, these papers a little difficult as well. Yeah, yeah. A lot of papers that heavily reference the word fun are not really about fun. Mm-hmm. 
All right, everybody. Uh, it looks like the the the, uh, the the fun train is reaching the station. <laughs> we are going to reach the end of this particular journey, but but who knows? We could we could be back at some point in the future if some other uh, interesting topics come up regarding fun. And of course, we'd love to hear from everyone again. If you have thoughts on fun, be it experience uh, of fun, fun in the workplace, the linguistics of fun, etc., do write in. We'd love to hear from you. I'm sure we'll be talking about this on listener mail episode episodes in the future. Listener mail episodes, of course, air on Mondays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Tuesdays and Thursdays are core episodes. Um, hey, those are the dance music days at the, at the YMCA. There you go. Interesting okay. coincidence there. Uh, Wednesdays, that's a short form artifact or a monster fact. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.